Verse 1, then answered Zophar the Namanite and said, should not the multitude of, the, of words be answered? Or should a man full of talk be justified? Should your lies make men hold their peace? And when you mock, shall no man make you ashamed? For you have said, my doctrine is pure and, my, and I am clean in my eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips against you that he would show you the secrets of wisdom, that they are double that which he is. Know therefore that God exacts of you your own iniquity. Can you by searching out find out God? Can you find out the Almighty unto perfection? It is as high as the heavens. What can you do deeper than hell? What can you know? The measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he cut off and shut up or gather together, who then can hinder him? For he knows vain men. He surely sees, sees wickedness also. Will he not then consider it? For vain men could, would be wise, though men be born of the wild ass's colt. If thou prepare your heart and stretch out your hand toward him, if iniquity be in your hand, put it away and let not wickedness dwell in your tabernacles. For then shall you lift up your face without spot. Yea, you should, shall be, be steadfast and shall not fear because you, for, because you shall forget your misery and remember it as water that passes away. And your age shall be clearer than the noonday. You shall shine forth, you shall be as the morning and you shall be secure because there is hope. Yea, you shall dig about you, and you shall take your rest in safety, and you shall lay down, and none shall make you afraid. Yea, many shall make suit unto you, but the eyes of the wicked shall fail, and they shall not escape, and their, and their hope shall be as the giving up of the ghost. So this is Zophar's answer to Job's long-winded <laughs> place where he said, I'm basically... I, I may have done wicked things, but nothing bad enough to deserve what has happened. So Zophar says to him, should not the multitude of, of words be answered? So first off, he's saying, you have said a whole lot, Job, and you know, now somebody has to speak. So, and in this case, he's saying, I'm going to be the one that, that speaks. Because Job went for two chapters. And Job usually, they speak for one, Job speaks for two, <laughs> and makes his complaint. And, you know, and he's the, he's the one that is supposed to be the wise one. He's the one that has been, been around a while. He knows God. And so he speaks very clear. And he says, you have spoken a lot. And he goes, should you not be answered? And should a man full of talk be justified? In other words, you have said many empty things. And should your speech stand? And one of the things that I have noticed over the years, the people who talk the most or usually have the most empty words to be saying. All right, and it just, it almost always comes out, you know, the more some, if you have something that's true, you just say it and it's done with and it's over. And the more you have to try to justify yourself, the longer you speak and the more roundabout you go. And this is basically what he's saying to Job. Job, you've spoken a whole lot of words. All you're trying to do is justify yourself and your words are empty. Not really the best way to respond to somebody who's in a lot of pain. Now, you're just full of a lot of empty talk, quit, quit complaining. But how many times is that exactly what most people say to somebody? I'm tired of hearing you complain. Would you just shut up for a little while? 
And it is hard sometimes when somebody, all they want to do is complain and complain and complain and justify their position and why they're complaining. And I see Job doing a little bit of this. When I read Job's answers, a lot of I see is, you know, I'm, I'm miserable. I wish I had never been born. I, I don't know why this is all happening. God should not have done this. And this is what Zophar is basically saying is like, Job, you know, why don't you just be quiet for a while? And probably the right words, but not the right attitude behind it. It would be nice if Job had just sat back and did more meditating on God and his word rather than complaining. But how many times do we do the same thing? When things aren't going the way we want it, instead of meditating on God and his word, we start grumbling and griping and complaining about what's happening to us instead of focusing on God and his word. And so this is what he's basically saying to him. Um, Should your lies make men hold their peace? And this is kind of an empty thing. The word literally isn't lies. It, It is, shall your empty words make us hold our peace? In other words, Job, you're speaking a lot. Should that, you know, because you're speaking so much, should we just be quiet and not respond? And, you know, this is something that's hard sometimes to try to figure out. Do you answer somebody in the midst of their misery and their irritation when they're not listening to you anyway? Or do you just let, let them pop off and sound off and not, not respond? And that's a very hard decision to make sometimes. Sometimes you need to, sometimes you don't. Because anytime you start answering all their emptiness, it doesn't result in any good either. And here he's saying, you know, shouldn't we just respond to your empty words how and even more how do we respond to your empty words job you're saying you are basically good and that god is being unjust by by doing these things to you because you don't think you're bad enough for him to be doing what's coming your way and how do you answer that how do you answer somebody's argument that isn't really a scriptural argument in the first place job is basically saying i'm basically good you know, I'm basically good. What little, what, what little I'm doing wrong doesn't deserve the punishment that I have been facing. So he's really not seeing how bad he, God sees him if God was to see his sin. Now, we, we also know that God says he is a righteous and upright man that hates evil. That was God's testimony of him because of the sacrifices, because of his repentance. But Job's friends don't see it that way. They see him from the way the flesh sees him. Job, if you only understood how bad your sin really is in the eyes of God, you wouldn't be trying to justify yourself. And I think that's a true statement, and it's a statement that we have to kind of work our way through in our own lives. Our sin is awful before God. The good news is because we're under the blood of Christ, God isn't dealing with us after our sin. Does that mean we can excuse our sin and say, well, it's really not that big, it's not that big a deal? No. But we also have to understand who we are in Christ and know that our sin is under the blood. And it's quite an interesting place where, where how do we deal with this? You know, how do I deal with this? Am I just saying, okay, you can do whatever you want because it's under the blood and you can go out and sin as much as you want and who cares? Or do I get legalistic and say, wow, what a terrible, awful person you are. Look at this, that, and the other thing that you're doing. And... This is kind of what we're seeing here. Job is on this side. God's covered it. It's all, it's all gone. It's not a problem. I'm really not doing anything. They're looking at him saying, Job, you know, sin is sin, and you've you got to be dealing with your sin. And this is two very opposite opinions. 
And this is where I want to fall on the side of grace, where God says it's covered, it's protected, because I don't see legalism ever changing people's lives. All right? Job's friends are dealing with legalism. Job is kind of using the idea that grace covers his sin and he can, he can do what he wants <laughs> because of, he's not going quite that far. He's just saying, look, I'm offering my sacrifices. I'm repenting. I'm before God. Don't tell me that I'm bad enough to deserve all the stuff that's come my way. Now, he does not understand sin as sin, that all sin deserves the ultimate punishment, but he also is understanding that God's grace keeps him. And so this is something that we're, we're going to see as a push and pull all through the book. As Job is saying way off in the other direction, God's grace covers everything, they're going to say, well, man has to pay for their sins. You know, they're way off where they don't belong. Job is maybe a little too far, too far the other way, but he's struggling and he is the one that's suffering. And that's not a surprise that how he's reacting that way. Um, and it says, and when you mock, shall no man make you ashamed. In other words, when you're mocking, mocking God's word, shall we not bring shame to you? And this is something that is interesting too because one of the things we find in today's world is if we don't correct somebody, then people go, oh, you're being very loving, you're not correcting me. Well, that's not love. Correction is something that brings people back to God, away from the direction they're going. Now, if I'm up at the Grand Canyon and somebody's running straight for the, for the rim, I'm not going to say, uh, you shouldn't really do that. That's not a really wise idea to run to the, run to the edge of the rim. I'm going to say, stop. <laughs> That's a long fall. Don't do this. And maybe even grab them if I have the opportunity. All right? Love does not say you can do whatever you please and it's okay. And, you know, you'll just have to deal with the consequences when they come your way, even though we know that is a true statement. Love says, I don't even want to see you have to face the consequences. And that means sometimes we're stopping them from doing things that they think they want to do. And this is very important for the, what they're in. And so in this case, so far is right. You know, we shouldn't allow you just to say these words and not, not be answerable to them. The problem is he doesn't do anything. None of these friends do anything in love. Sometimes they say the right things to Job, but none of them have that idea that we love you, we care about you, they're condemning in the way they bring out what they say. And we need to be careful that when we're correcting somebody, we're not correcting in a condemning way and making them feel worse than they should. And so this is what we see in here. He goes, for you say, my doctrine is pure and I am clean in your eyes. So basically he's saying, Job, you're saying that you're, you know, you're saying you're good. Or at least that you're not that bad. All right? My doctrine is pure. What I understand, my knowledge. All right? We've talked about this many times. Doctrine is a word that scares a lot of Christians. And all it means is a way of thinking. So he's saying, you're saying that your way of thinking is pure. That you are innocent. You're, nothing's wrong with what you're saying. And that you are clean in your eyes. And so, And his statement is going to be basically... Job, if you were perfect and clean, then God would not have been doing these things to you. And the whole idea of that when you do right, you get nothing but blessing. When you do wrong, you get nothing but cursing. And that never in between can God do anything that he decides to do because he's sovereign. 
And we need to be careful about that. And this is the one thing that is so clear in the book of Job is God is sovereign. He allows Satan to do some things that don't make any sense. All right, Job, you know, Satan says, Job, he's only following you because you're treating him so well. And if you didn't treat him so well, he would not follow you. And then God says, okay, go ahead and try. Yeah. And that is hard for us to understand. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Because we would all go, well, you know, God, if you really, really, really wanted Job to love you, why did you make things hard on him? Just to prove that he'd still love you? And it is hard sometimes to look at this. Now, what is God trying to teach Job? He's trying to teach him a whole line of things that God is sovereign, that Job is not as pure as he thinks he is, which is where he's going to come to at the end of this. Even though God says he's a righteous man that hates evil, he did not say that Job was a perfect man who did know evil. He just said he's a righteous man who hates evil. And we need to be able to understand that God says, every one of us, he knows that we are sinners. And this is very important for us to understand is we are sinners. And we sin because we are sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. A different way to reveal to us? Well, if God did it, there was no other way to give it to him. But how many times have you had somebody tell you something and you ignore what they tell you until you have to learn it the hard way? Almost all human beings have to learn the hard way, unfortunately. You know, I know that stove is hot, but I've got to go find out how hot it is. You know, and then once you've done it once, you never want to touch it again on purpose. But, you know, we tend to do that. How close to the fire can I get before I get burnt is our normal attitude. And we read the scriptures. We see everybody going through the same problems that we're facing. And we're going, I'd never do that. I would never do what they did. And then we find ourselves doing just what they did. Uh, so, yes. God had probably told him many times, and it's obvious these guys have a good solid standing on that God is above us. He has standards that are higher than our standards. That's what Zophar is going to say. Uh, but did Job recognize that where he was at? And I'm saying the question is probably no, that God had to strip everything away from him to show him that how bad he was because when he gets to the end he stands when and when he finally gets toward the end of the book when he's fed up with his friends he's going I just want God to stand here so I can talk to him and then what happens when God stands before him he said I clapped my hand on my mouth and I would not say a word because all of a sudden he saw God for who God was and when he saw the holiness of God he saw even how evil his statements had been and his attitudes had been and we do the same thing we can study God's word, we can look at the history, we can look at the events of the good, and still not learn. And, you know, I like to, tell, like to think that I learn a lot by watching others' mistakes, but, you know, over my years I have had to make the same mistakes that I have watched others make more often than not and find out that it was true that I was going to fail in the same problem that they failed in. And I hate that, but it is what's true. God knows that. He's trying to teach Job a great message and a great lesson. And I think it's one that Job knew on one side, but had not actually practiced. You know, I think he knew that God is greater, has a higher standard, but you know, he's living in self-pity at the moment. 
And then once you hit self-pity, you're in trouble because your mind no longer is you know, working. You're, oh, woe is me. I don't deserve anything that's going on in my life. And, and nothing, nothing is considered. This is where Job is at this moment. Could he have learned some other way? Absolutely. God has all kinds of ways to do it. But you know, one thing, and I've said this, you know, I've watched people get slammed by God for their activities because they wouldn't repent. And I've thought the same thing. God, couldn't you have done something that wasn't quite as devastating as losing your family, losing your business, losing your marriage? Obviously, the answer is no. Otherwise, God would have done the lesser. But he's teaching Job a lesson in all of this about prosperity, about blessing, about who he is compared to who God is. And it's a very hard lesson. Hopefully I'm never that hard-headed again that I have to go through these hard lessons. But, you know, I've been through these type of lessons where God has, you know, slammed me against the floor and, you know, pinned me, pinned me down and said, are you ready to, ready to finally listen? No, I'm not ready and keep fighting. I've been there, done this. Maybe not quite as severe as what's happening here. But all of us have had this experience probably in our life where we just, God, I, I think I know, but I'm not ready to bow my heart. So God says, okay, let me help you get ready to bow your heart. And then runs you through the ringer. And hard, it's hard to go through that ringer, hard to admit where we're at. Um, and he says in verse 5, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips against you. So so, so far, Zophar is saying, yeah, Job, you think you're so special. You're not listening to us. We, I just wish God would speak to you right now. Now, God is going to speak to him later on, but, you know, his, so far saying, Job, you're being so obstinate, so stuck in your ways. I wish that God would come down and speak to you directly. All right? Uh, and I've had that prayer for some of, the, some of the times and I've looked at and say, God, would you just talk to that person? It's, you know, they're not listening to anything. It's time for you to come in. Uh, and so he goes in verse 6, and that he would show you the secrets of wisdom that they are double of that which is. So what is he saying here? Wisdom is that, that knowledge, that applied knowledge. Show you the secrets of wisdom, the things that God knows. And then he goes, and that they are double what you think you know. So what is he basically saying here? God is higher than you are. He's wiser than you are. He knows much more than you are. It's reminiscent of Isaiah where God says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your thoughts. And so he's reminding him. And it's very clear that he understands that God is greater. Whatever God communicates to us has been washed down because our language cannot contain what God really wants us to say, wants to say to us. And even though we have 66 books of the Bible, all of it is really watered down because God can't really display himself in human language. You know, how big is God? Well, we say he's infinite. Well, what is infinite? You know, as soon as we try to think about what infinite is, we put a limit on it. God, I think it's a million miles. Well, God says, well, you can multiply it. You can, you can uh, raise that to the power of, of, a, of a million, and you're still not in infinity. You know, it goes, that's how, that's, how big I, that's how big I am. How strong am I? Whatever, you know, whatever we think, well, God, you must be as strong as, you know, 20 elephants. He goes, no, that's not even beginning to be the number. You know, okay, God, you're, you know, but we as human beings want to put some quantitative number on the infinite. Now, we in our day and age, we have much bigger numbers we play with. I comment on this when we sing some of the old hymns and they go, 
you know, we've been, when we've been there 10,000 years, well, when that song was written in the 1800s, 10,000 was an unthinkable big number. You know, you never made more than a couple hundred dollars, you know, pounds in a, in a year, in a lifetime. And so if you had 10,000, you were super wealthy. If you had 10,000 years, you were super long. Now, what do we think of? You know, well, we're trillions of dollars in debt as a country. Uh, most people are several hundred thousand dollars in debts when they have the house and a car and everything. And so we don't even, you know, we would have to pick some bigger number. If I was one, you know, one million years, one billion years, our numbers are much different in our day and age. So here he's saying God is bigger than anything you can comprehend, Job. You're justifying yourself and you don't even know God's standards. You're not fully understand. This is a very true statement that he's making to Job. Job, you're trying to justify yourself, but you don't know how God sees sin. You don't know how God sees righteousness. And even if you did, you'd have to double it to get, done, to get God's standard. So, you know, Job, you think, you know, think about the best righteous thing you can think of, and then you'll have to double it to even get close to God's standard. It's a very wise statement in it. Not, again, one of the things that's hard when you're counseling somebody is even when you say what is true, it doesn't answer their questions. And I've shared with you, even though Romans 8.28 is one of my favorite verses, it's a great comfort to me when I'm going through. I learned the very hard way in my, in my late teens or early 20s not to use it to comfort somebody. Because they just about ripped my head off because they didn't believe it going in. They really did not believe that all the bad was happening to them, that God would make it good come from it. All right. So truth is something we have to be very careful with when sharing truth with somebody who's hurting. Because it may just go in as a knife and you know, more like a corkscrew and twist in there and make them feel worse, even though it's true. And here he's saying, Job, you think you know what righteousness is. You think you know what God, how God sees you. You don't even have a clue because God is you know, he, he has secrets that, he, that you don't even understand. And even if you did understand them, you don't understand them because you'd have to double them even to get the beginning of the understanding. And so this is a very true statement. And truth can hurt when it's given wrong. You know, and this is one of the things that uh, I love as a pastor is I can give people truth and then remind them what they already know when they're going through hard times. As a chaplain, chaplains have a real hard job, and I've tried to share that with people at the prison. They go, well, why do you leave chaplains? I go, because chaplains have a hard job. They have to bring God's truth in when they're hurting. As a pastor, I just teach people what, what they need to know and then remind them what they know. And it's a lot easier. Now, it doesn't make it all that easy, but it's a lot easier because it's like, okay, we've talked about this in the past, and we've shared this with you before in the past. Don't you remember? And as I've said, we, we have this statement that I heard first from Chuck Smith, and I'm sure he's not the, the originator of it, but don't forget in the darkness what you learned in the light. All right? As a pastor, that's my job. I teach you in the light, and then when you go through the darkness, I can then go, hold it, we already covered that. Remember, this is what you learned. If you're a chaplain, you're trying to bring in light into the darkness, and there's no capacity to understand it. It's hard enough as a pastor to remind people what they know. And here Job's friend is, you know, Zophar is saying, you don't even begin, Job, you're not even beginning to understand God. And even if you think you do, you don't understand him. 
And that's the one thing that I have been learning over the years. I've been walking with God for 52 years and I still do not seem to know him. You know, how big is God? I have a great big God and he's still bigger than whatever, what I contemplate him. How strong is God? How all-knowing is God? As soon as we start entering in the inf into the infinite, we go, you know, we as human beings, because we're finite, we want to put a limit on, on infinity. You know, and this is one thing we talk about when I was in mathematics, okay? What does it mean to be in infinite? Well, you know, it means it's bigger than this number. Well, yeah, it's much bigger than that number because <laughs> it doesn't have an end. You know, uh, and we talk about this, the infinite God indwells every single believer and he's still infinite. He is not lessened because he is in each person. We all have an infinite God living in us because if we divide infinity by any number, it's still infinity. So he is infinitely filling us. Job is not fully understanding that and this is what Zophar is trying to explain to him. You know, he's, you know, whatever you think you know about him, double it and you're still not there. And we in our day, you know, we wouldn't say double, we'd say multiply by a million or a billion and, and you're still not there. Uh, so it goes, double it, therefore, know therefore that God's exacts of you your iniquity. And I'm going to take out the italics words in this one because I don't believe they belong in there. They, they, they don't fit what it says. But he says exacts or, or pulls away. He says, know therefore that God exacts, takes away from you, your iniquity. And the King James says, less than your iniquity deserves. All right? I don't think those are in italics. I don't believe, I don't believe they belong there. He takes from you what your iniquity deserves. Now, technically, you could put less than because what does iniquity deserve? Death. Has Job faced death yet? So yes, in one sense, he is facing less than what he deserves. But Job's comments before this have been, I don't deserve all the punishment that I have been getting. And so far saying, you don't even know what you're talking about. Why? Because you face death. Sin, the wages of sin is death. And he says, you haven't faced death yet. So God has not taken away from you everything you deserve. And so this is where he's at with him. And he says, can you by searching or investigating find out God? Can you find out the Almighty One unto perfection or completion? Can you search for God and find Him? And this is something that is very important for us. We, as human beings, cannot find God because He is spiritual. No matter how much we search, that is what religion does. They search for God. They say, here are your rules to find God. Do this, do this, do this, do this. You know, sing this mantra, say this saying 99 million times, uh, crawl on your knees across the desert, you know, whatever it is that they're going to tell you to do, and you will find God. We can't find him. What is different about Christianity? The shepherd came and found us and drew us to himself. He came, he died on the cross, he paid the penalties. He is the one that searches for us and calls us to himself. And this is where we get into this whole idea of predestination and, and uh, election and all of this, that God comes to us. 
Now, yes, there's a call to all people to come to him. But God is the one. He's the shepherd. He is the one that left the 90 and 9 and goes out and finds the, the, sheep, the lost sheep, picks him up and carries him back to the fold. And I understand our, you know, we have a, a, some element of free will. Whosoever will can call on the name of Jesus. And, uh, for God so loved the world that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. But it's God that does the work. It's the Holy Spirit that does the work and calls and draws and pursues. Now, if you can think back before you got saved, how irritated did you get with every Christian that came your way? Because you didn't want to hear their words. You know, and you just started pushing back against the call of God. And it happens over and over again where you just don't, you know, you have this, I want God, I'm wanting to be drawn to him but you don't like what you hear and it pushes back against you because what does Christianity mean? I surrender myself to God completely. You know, and it's not God giving me these rules to follow to, to please him. It's saying total surrender. And our human flesh says, I don't want to totally surrender to anybody. I like to be in charge. And God says, the only way you can do it is to be surrendered to me. Be my servant, surrendered completely to me as my slave, my servant. And the flesh is going, don't want that, don't care, I don't want to serve God, I don't want to serve anybody. Uh, Keith Green had put out a song, you've got to serve somebody. And it is really true that we serve, and the scriptures tell us that. We will either serve God or we will serve sin. We are never serving ourselves. We always will serve somebody, the sin nature or God, and it becomes our choice. Who do I want to serve? Ultimately, I should want to serve God because there's freedom and peace and joy and, and, and all that goes along there. Sin is bondage and death and destruction. And this is the problem that we have to decide. Who are we going to serve? Now, most people go, well, I'm not going to serve anybody. Well, they're deceived. They're serving sin, and they are going to face all the problems of serving sin. And this is the thing that we have to bring out. Man's pride says, I'm in charge. And no, I don't serve anybody. I'm not going to bow my knee to anybody. And I've talked to a gentleman in, in, right here in Chloride. He goes, I will never turn to God because I will not bow my knee to anybody. I'm going, well, you will bow your knee to God, at least at the white throne judgment. And you're bowing your knee to sin right now. Oh, no, no, I'm in, I'm in complete control of my life. As he's an alcoholic and a drug, drug abuser. You know, with no control of his life, but he is, doesn't see that as being under bondage and serving. This is what Zophar is telling him. You know, you've got to serve somebody. Who are you going to be serving? And then he goes here, and this is Isaiah 55, 4, in a various way. It is as high as the heaven, what can you do? Deeper than hell, what can you know? The measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. In other words, he's saying God is bigger than anything you can comprehend. You know, Isaiah 55, 4. God's thoughts are higher than your thoughts and his ways are higher than your ways who can comprehend him. This is what Joe Farr is saying without the Isaiah being written at that point in time. He goes, you think you know this? God is higher than the heavens. You can't get there. He's deeper than hell. You can't get there. He's wider than the earth and he's broader than the seas. You know, he goes, whatever you can think of, Job, God is bigger. 
And at this time, they didn't fully comprehend that the, the sea had an, had an end. But you, know, you looked out over the sea for them and, and looked out and looked out and looked out, and all you saw was sea. And if you've ever sailed on the sea, you go out far enough, and all you see is sea. You know, and basically what he's saying is, God is bigger than all of this stuff, Job. You think you, think you know God. And this is quite a statement that he's making. God, Job, you are saying that you are basically good. Do you really know God well enough to know that you are good by his standards? You're saying that God is judging you incorrectly because you're not that bad. Do you really know what God knows? And this is something for each one of us. When we start feeling sorry for ourselves or that we're being misused, do we truly understand what God is doing in our life? The answer is no. Because we can't understand God completely anyway. We had the introduction to the book so we know what God is doing, but without that we still wouldn't know what's going on because Job appears to be a good man. Everything about him seems to be a good man, and we'd be doing the same thing as friends are going... What in the world is going on, Job? What have you done that is so bad that God is judging you? You know, are you totally misunderstanding God and, and his kindness and his righteousness? Or do you have some secret sin that we're not aware of that God knows in your life? He goes, and Job, even, even though you're saying you're good and don't deserve this, you do not know God's standards. And the more I get into God's word, the more I begin to see God's standards, and the more I realize that I offend God with just about everything I do, and then I get comfortable with where I'm at, and then he teaches me that I'm still not far enough into what he wants to do because he gives me a little deeper understanding of who he is. How righteous is God? You know, infinitely righteous. How uh, unrighteous are we? Basically, un- infinitely unrighteous. And we put those two apart from each other, and it's like, how can I ever plan to please God when I am way down on this side and he's way over there on this side? I cannot please him completely. And this is the one thing, and I've shared this, you know, Paul at the end of his life said, I am the chiefest of sinners. And most everybody that I've, every commentary that I read, everything that pastor I've heard, they say, Joe, uh, that Paul was talking about before he became a Christian, I think he was talking about how he was seeing himself at the end of his life. As he was drawing closer to God and started to really start to understand God's righteousness, and seeing how unrighteous his life was. Because that's exactly what's happening to me. The more I walk with God, the more I've cleaned up my life, the more I realize that I am a dirty, rotten, stinking sinner that is worse than anybody else because I should know better. And I don't know better, apparently, compared to God's standards. And the more, God, I see the righteousness of God, the more I see how awful we as humans are, including myself. And so here is what Zophar is saying. Job, Job, you're not even understanding how God sees things. He is greater than you are. He is bigger than we are. He's bigger than anything you can think of. And so he's going through this. If he cut off and shut up and, and gathered together, who then can hinder, it, hinder him? Job, you know, God has taken everything away from you. Can you stop him from doing it? Now, we know from our side of it, it wasn't God that actually took it away from him. God gave Satan permission to do so. But Zophar's answer is, you know, if God says you lose everything, are you going to be able to stop him? You know, and this is a very important question. If God decides to, to move against us because of our sin and trying to get our attention, there is nothing we can do to stop him. You know, 
We might think that we can. Satan somehow thinks he can. Somehow he thinks he's going to win, even though he's the created being that's fully under control of God. But you know, when it comes right down to it, whatever God sends my way, there is nothing I can do to stop him. He is smarter than I am, stronger than I am, knows the future, and I don't know the future, you know, you know worth hill of beans either. Every, in every aspect, he is bigger, stronger, and able to get things done, and I can't stop him, and nobody else can stop him. And that was his question. Job, you, know, you were just saying, you're a pretty good guy. You know, can you stop God from taking away your stuff? You know, was there anything you could have done to stop any of this? He goes, for he knows vain men and sees wickedness also. Will he not consider it? So he says, God sees all. Doctrine in this, this book is really very interesting because the doctrine they understood about God is wonderful. God sees everything. He knows everything. He is everywhere. And he goes, God sees all this. Would he not consider the evil that you've done? And basically he's saying, Job, you said you were a good guy. You can't think of anything that deserves to be punished, Job. Yeah. And Job is going, no, I can't think of anything that deserves the punishment that I got. But that's because he doesn't understand God's righteousness compared to his unrighteousness. And this is where Zophar is really going. He goes, you know, God has seen you, Job. He has seen. Now, he still thinks that Job is doing something in secret. I mean, his, his idea is, Job, you know, you really did have a lot happen to you, so there must be something really big that nobody else knows, but he says God saw it. All right. But I'm going to take it even, even lesser that God knows everything we do and everything that we do that's wrong deserves punishment if God was to totally give us what we deserve. So, now, Zophar is looking at this, you know, Job, you really had to have done something big to lo lost all your family and all your all your possessions. So what is it that you're not confessing? What is it that you're not admitting to? But it can also be taken just the way I took it. Job, you know, you've done a lot of wrong things, and if we add up all those little wrong things, you deserve, you deserve what you've got because God is so much greater. And that's a true statement. This is the way the world looks at God. God is a big meanie up in heaven with a great big hammer, lightning bolts, whatever you want to look at, waiting for us to do something wrong so he can smash us. That is how the world looks at God. I am so glad that Jesus came so that we can see him by grace and saying, God, I am so happy that you love us, <laughs> that you're not up there waiting for me to do something wrong so that I can be crushed. I'm going to get crushed enough just because of the, the reaping what I sow, and I don't need God up there trying to add to it. And so this is what he's saying is that God is up there, then he will consider it. For vain men would be wise... Though a man born like a wild ass's colt, for a vain man would be wise in his own eyes. All right. What do most people think when they're when they're vain and everything centers around them? I'm the one that you know, the whole world revolves around me. I deserve I deserve your attention. You know, most of us have met somebody in our lifetime that is the center of all attention. They are right no matter what. You know. Uh, unfortunately, in my family, I got lots of people like that that are right no matter what. And it's fun when they get together and they argue with each other for hours because neither one of them will let the other one be right. Because they are the center of the world and they are right. And that lack of humility is hard. It's hard to watch, it's hard to be around. 
to watch somebody who just thinks that they are the one that has to be catered to and they have to be used and this is his accusation to Job you know Job you, you're just a vain man who thinks that you need to be catered to and everybody needs to accept what you are saying he's being pretty harsh it's very poetic but he's being very harsh toward Job you know Job you just think you think you're the center of the world you know you think the whole world revolves around you Job if you would just repent and, and get over your pride, then this would, be, this would all be over. And that's really what he's boiling down his argument to. Job, quit, quit griping. You're not the center of the world. Uh, says, if you prepare your heart and stretch out your hands toward him, and this is kind of an interesting thing. He says, if you were to do this, if you were to prepare your heart, which is established, make it firm, get ready to serve God and stretch your hands out to him. And he goes, and if iniquity be in your hand, put it far away and let not wickedness dwell in your tabernacles. It says, get rid of whatever wickedness there is. Get your heart strengthened, the innermost being of yourself. Stretch out your hands. Get rid of all the iniquity that's in your, in your, in your tent, your hidden iniquities, all these things that you're, that you're going to, to deal. He goes, for then... Shall you lift up your face without spot? Yea, you shall be steadfast and you shall not fear. He says, Job, if you just get rid of all the wickedness that you're hiding, then you could stand before God without, without fear and without spot. Now, again, this is worldly wisdom. Well, how are you going to, when you stand before God, why should he let you? Well, I've been a, basically a good person. You know, wrong answer. You know, this is not good advice for him from him. Job has been doing what he's supposed to. He's been offering sacrifices. He's been humbling himself before God. He has done what he needs. And there's no sin hidden in him. That deserve, Again, we know because of what we know the, the story going on. But Zophar saying, Job, there is something that you're not admitting to. Just get it out in the open. Come before God and admit your, your crime. And then you can stand before him without fear. I would not want to stand before God no matter what without Jesus Christ. Because nothing is good enough without Jesus Christ because all our righteousnesses are filthy rags. So to stand before God in anything other than the righteousness of Christ is not going to allow me to appear before him without spot. And this is why it, I cringe when I, when I witness to somebody and go, well, I just hope my goodness will be good enough that when I stand before God, it'll outweigh my bad, and I'm going, it won't. And they go, what? I'm going, well, you have to be perfectly, you have to be perfect, and that is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then I will quote Isaiah for them. All our righteousnesses are filthy rags. When people stand at the white throne judgment before God, they're going to stand in the filthy rags of their righteousness telling God that they deserve to go to heaven. And when they finally do see that their righteousness is our filthy rags, they're going to realize that their hope has been wrong all their life. Because they're going to be judged for not being perfect. We, on the other hand, put on Jesus Christ. We'll be showing, standing before God in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he's going to say, come on in. What a difference. Sin has been dealt with. People do not go to sin for, uh, go to hell because of their sin. They go to hell because they are not perfect. And they're trying to stand in their own righteousness. Their good works is not going to be good enough and they were sent to hell because they rejected the gift of God of perfect righteousness. 
Zophar is not giving good advice on this one. All right. Yes, it's generally good. Go, go offer sacrifices and, and repent, and then you can stand before God. But it's, he's saying there's some secret sin out there that you have to get, get over. Get rid of that secret sin. Uh, get it out of your house. You know, let not wickedness dwell in your house, your tabernacle, your house. For then shall you be able to lift up your face without spot, without blemish, and you shall be steadfast and you shall not fear because you shall forget your misery and remember it as the waters that pass away. Basically says when this is all over, Job, you're not going to remember all this pain and suffering. Now this is kind of a wise statement because how many times have we gone through something and when we're past it, we're, we're past the pain, we're, we've gone into the blessing of God from it, we look back and we say, oh, they brought this blessing or it really wasn't that big a deal after all. You know, when we get to the other side of the mountain in front of us and we look at it from the back side, it looks like just a small molehill. But when we're facing the giant on this side, we're in terror of it. And when God delivers us from him, we get to the other side and going, that giant was only six inches tall. You know, God, why was I ever afraid of it? Or as we're told, when we are in heaven and we see the devil for what he is, and they will say, is this the one that made the nations tremble? This side we look at him, and he's the flim-flam man behind the curtain making all the, all the special effects, making himself look big, and we'll get to the other side, and we'll say, that little wimp is who terrorized everybody? That is what we were afraid of for all those years? And this is what he's saying. When you get to the other side, you'll look back and say, I won't even remember the hardship. I'll remember the good that comes from it. And I can tell you there's many things in my lifetime I look back on, and they were horrible when I was going through them. But I look back and I say, God, if I hadn't gone through that, I wouldn't be ready for this. I wouldn't be able to minister to this person because I had not gone through what you put me through. Does that make it easier to go through the problem? No. Knowing that he will use it for good does help, but it doesn't make it easy. God, I know that all things work together for good for those that love you and called according to your purpose, but it sure hurts at the moment. And many times, and I've said this over and over, I've said to God, God, I do not understand this, but I trust your word. And this is what it comes down to. We need to know God's word so that when things go contrary to his word by what we see, we're going, God, I'm going to trust you that you are true. That you are true and that every man is a liar, including myself on what I, how I see this. And this is what Zophar is saying. You know, when you get past it, Job, it's gonna, you're going you're gonna to look back at this and you're not going to remember all the pain and suffering you went through. Now, that would have been quite a statement for him. You know, he lost his family, he lost his wealth. That, that's going to be something he's never going to get fully over. But God does restore. At the end of the book, he restores and gives him double of everything. So he gets double all the possessions he has, and he gets another family the same size as his first one, and his first one is in heaven, so he doubled, he doubled his family. So he gets double of everything. Now, he only gets half of the family now and half, you know, the other half later on in heaven, but he, it's all doubled, and it's going to be just this. It, he'll be steadfast, and he won't, and it'll be like it went away. And it says, and age shall be clearer than noonday. You shall shine forth. You shall be as the morning. 
What is he telling him here? And this is good advice. This is where Zophar is good. When you're past the trials and you're forgetting the pain of the trials, God will lift you up and use those trials as a good blessing for you. What is he basically saying? He is saying here, Romans 8.28, when you get to the end, God is going to work it out for good. It's going to be good somehow. And you will shine forth. You will be able to minister. You will be able to use what you have gone through so that others can grow. And 4,000 years later, we're still talking, probably 3,500 years later, we're still talking about Job and what he went through and using him as an example of staying faithful to God. Was Zophar right in that? You will shine forth. You will be gloried. Your, 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 Your actions will be able to shine forth. And I've seen this over and over. When I go through something hard, God allows me to be empathetic with somebody or be more loving toward them because I've gone through something like similar to what they've done. Going through the hard times allows me to be able to be used by God later on. So when we're going through hard times, I'm not going to try to belittle it. The hard time is a hard time. <laughs> My hard times have been very hard times when I was going through them. But God has used them in the future to shine forth, to be able to say, this is what it was all about. This is what you learned from going through that hard time. You found out about my love. You found out about my mercy. You found out about my care. You found out about the fact that I am true in what I say. Whatever it might be that you're being taught, you come out of that trial and you're going, now I understand a little more about you, God. I understand how much you love me. I understand how much you hate sin. I understand how much you still love us when we do wrong. And this is what he's saying, that you will shine forth and that you shall be as the morning. You shall be secure because there is hope. You shall dig about you and you shall take your rest in safety. So you shall be confident, secure, because there is hope. Now, hope in the scripture is a confident expectation that God is true. All right? It's not I wish and I hope, but a confident expectation of who God is. When he puts us through a hard trial and the other side, we come back and say, oh, God, you are who you say you are. And now I have a hook to put that on. And this is why it is important. Do I enjoy going through hard times? No. Am I happy after the fact? Yes, far enough in it, I am happy because now I start to understand that God is true. He is righteous. He is trying to teach me, and his word is true if I just stay faithful. And so here Job is being said, you shall be secure, you shall dig about you, and you shall take your rest in safety. What is one of the things that they did in your, when even in the military, you dig in. You, you put up a wall around you, you know, earthen wall around you. you. You get yourself set up. He's saying you're now in a safe place. You have provided your shelter. You're dug in. You're, you, you don't have a full shelter, but you are dug in. And God says now you can sleep safely. You can be able to rest knowing that he still cares for you. Because right now Job is having a hard time thinking that God, you know, God doesn't care about me. You know, he didn't, didn't protect my family, didn't protect my livestock. He didn't, you know, didn't even protect my wife's attitude. She started telling me to curse God and die too. 
You know, so all, all of what Job is thinking of this moment is nothing but dreary thoughts. I miss, my, I miss my nine kids. My wife is telling me to just curse God and get it over with. I have no wealth. I have nothing to, to feed, no servants. Everything is gone, and he's miserable. And not understanding any of this, and he has, at this point, he is not seeing the hope. When God gets done with him and restores him and, and talks to him and he prays for his friends so that they don't get cursed, he starts really understanding the hope. God, you had something you were trying to teach me, that you are sovereign, you are, you are absolutely true, and his hope is intensified by what he's going to go through. But in the moment, his hope is being challenged, and there is no hope that he is facing. Also you shall lay down, and none shall make you afraid. Yea, many shall make suit unto you. And this is the idea of... Uh, the word suit indicates this idea of being feeble in pain and all of this. It's an old English word that they're going to make fun of you. They're going to taunt you. Many are going to, are, will taunt you, but you have nothing to fear. Now, the thing Zophar doesn't realize is he's one of the ones trying to taunt Job at the moment. Uh, he thinks he's given him good counsel, but he is one of the ones mocking and and taunting him in, in his position. And we need to really be careful when we're going to step out and counsel somebody, are we truly giving godly counsel? And one of the things that I have said that is so important, if you're going to counsel somebody, you're going to try to correct them, the very first step is to pray for them. And it's very interesting to me that when we pray for somebody, one of two things happen, and probably both. Number one, my attitude toward them usually will soften and become more loving and more conciliatory when I do speak to them. Number two, God oftentimes changes them before I even have to talk to them. Now, I've always wondered, is it my attitude that's changed so that I don't worry about so much of what they do, or does God actually change them? And I think it's both. I think it's me more than them. Because there have been times when I would just sit down and I will pray, God, this situation has to change. Can you please change this person? And I'm learning to ask God change me because I'm the one that usually changes more than they change. Or he just makes it so that I'm not as concerned about what they do. And that is so important because I am not God to somebody. I'm not God to anybody in the church. I'm not God to anybody in my family. I'm not God to anybody, hopefully. And if they place me that high, boy, am I in trouble. And so are they. But God changes our attitude toward them and just expresses love toward that individual. Yeah. And this is what's important. That's one thing that I've been changing, too. I said, God, I always ask for people to change. I said, you need to change me first. Yep. And that's what he's going to do anyway. He changes us to make us more loving, more kind, more, more able to reach out to them. And the last verse says, but the eyes of the wicked shall fail, and they shall not escape, and their hope shall be as the giving up of the ghost. He says, the wicked have no hope. And if you remember before you were saved, or even maybe after you've been saved, if you had something that you weren't really putting into God's hands, and you're going, God, there is no hope. This is nothing but dreary, dreariness, and I have no hope. And when you cease to have hope, you're in trouble. And this is why the righteous have hope. Why? Because our hope is in God. 
My hope isn't on anything that I can do. It's not in circumstances. It's not in actions. And if it is, I am without hope. And I can't tell you how many people I have talked to that are without hope because they're not focused on God. I've had it happen with many Christians that aren't focused on God and have no hope because their own, all their hope is on whatever they can get done. Now, and for somebody who's really smart and managerial and all these things, you're still without hope because you're going to keep trying to do things your way and God's going to stop them from going through and you're going to fail 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 because God has turned himself against you. And if God's against you, you're in trouble. Believe me, been there. You know, I tried to work my way out of a problem. For six years, I tried to work my way out of a problem. And God did not let any of my plans ever work. None of them. And I'm a manager, I'm a planner, I'm an organizer. They were good plans, and God still would not let them work. When I finally said, I give up, God fixed everything in just a, just a couple months. It's an amazing thing that when we put our hope in God, everything works. If we put our hope in ourselves, nothing will work. And we will be totally without hope, without God. And this is something that's very important, and this is so far say, saying it to him, you know, you know he's uh, obviously thinking that Job is in that second group, trying to do things his own way without hope, but he doesn't understand what's going on either. And we need to always understand when we are following God, there's hope. Because our hope is in him, not ourselves. And if we're always trying to do it our own way, we're going to be miserable and we're without hope in the long run. We may think we have hope. God, I've got my newest plan and it's, it's going to work. And it fails. God, I've got my new plan. It's going to work. And it fails. Because God is not going to let us stand before him in victory. Because he says, you can only stand before me my way coming to me by my, my directions. Lord, we ask you to help us to see you in all that we do. Lord, help us to learn to trust you and to learn your word and to care for everything you want us to follow with. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to, get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. 
We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.